This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. To immerse oneself in Patricia Engel's prose is to surrender to a seductive embrace, a hypnotic beauty that mingles submersion with submission. So says the New York Times. And all of us who have read her work, whether Vida or It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, or The Veins of the Ocean, or the best-selling and award-winning Infinite Country, know that the Times has gotten it right. Roxane Gay has called her a gorgeous writer, and with her new collection of short stories, The Faraway World, the praise keeps coming. This from Esquire. One of our most essential writers, Engel's gift for dialogue and her lyrical powers of description make these stories crackle, but it's her bittersweet insight into the cost of leaving and staying home that will lodge the faraway world in your heart. On this edition of The Literary Life, we take a deep dive into these stories with Patricia, who's in conversation with her good friend Dwyer Murphy, the author of An Honest Living and the soon-to-be-published The Stolen Coast. Dwyer is also the editor of Literary Hub's Crime Reads, and their conversation was recorded live at Books and Books in Carl Gables, Florida. Uh, and thank you for having us here at Books and Books. This is a home crowd that we're playing to tonight, so this is exciting. Uh, and I want to kind of begin this process. I know this sounds like a particularly mundane question, uh, but just hearing all of the titles of your books, Patricia, that it makes other writers really envious. They're such beautiful and evocative titles. So I want to start by just asking you about the faraway world and what it, what it means to you. Okay, thank you. Uh, first, I just want to thank everyone for coming out on this beautiful night, almost full moon night. And thank you, Christina and the Books and Books team who are like family at this point, and a lot of you here who are like family at this point too. Um, and Dwyer, who... Dwyer and I met a long time ago in New York before any books, right? I know. A very, it feels like a very long time ago, but yeah. we, we now both live on the same small island. Yeah, we're now we're neighbors yes. down here. Yeah, so, so thank you so much, Dwyer, for thank coming. You. I admire Dwyer and his work so much, so you should definitely check out his books. So, The Faraway World. Please excuse my uh, napkin bookmark, which is very Miami. Um, the Faraway World is a collection of 10 short stories that um, came together slowly over 10 or 12 years 
And during that time, I really didn't realize I was writing a collection. I wrote other stories that time, during that time, that were not included in this book. And so I didn't ever think of them having a title. Um, when I decided it was a collection, and when it was acquired by a publisher, it had a different title. And I still never felt firmly committed to that one either. Um, so I had a sense that you know something else will come to me. Sometimes with short story collections, as you know, you end up titling them after one of the stories. So I thought that might happen, but I still hadn't thought about it too much and hadn't decided. Um, at some point, when I was working on the edits for the manuscript, at the same time, personally, um, I was looking across some personal mementos that we'd um, come across of that belonged to my grandfather who emigrated from Austria. Well, he didn't emigrate. He took a job in Colombia and ended up there and could not go back to Austria because of World War II. And um, one of the things that he just carried through him through his life was a photograph that he took before leaving Vienna, which was of his um, the tombstone of the family stone where his mother, who died when he was a child, was buried, and his grandparents were buried. And on the back, he had written, um, I'm saying goodbye. Uh, this is a goodbye from your beloved son who is about to leave for the faraway world. So that was something, you know, and none of, we're all Colombians now, so obviously none of us speak German or Austrian German or old Austrian German. So we got the translation because it was translated. Um, by somebody that my father knows. And that phrasing really struck me because it felt so much more loaded than just this idea of just who's leaving, traveling, going elsewhere. Uh, and it stuck with me. And then when I was thinking about this collection as a proper book, it just came to me. And one day um, I told my editor, I said, I, I think I want to change the title to The Faraway World. And she said, let's do it. It's so interesting that it comes from this very different setting like middle Europa and another period when I think your stories and much of your work is so richly set and uh, it's not obviously all in the same geographic space but it feels like the same imaginative space I guess I've thought of it or tried to characterize it as the the sort of American diaspora but I, I I'm curious how you think of how did the setting for some of these stories come to you? And how do you think of that imaginative space as you're writing? Yeah, that's a great question because I don't know if um, place is a thing that I think about too consciously. More often than not, I'm thinking about people and people navigate different spaces and sometimes at the same time. Um, and I grew up in that condition of being the product of immigration where you're living a life in the present, in the new country, but you still carry so much with you in every moment of the country that was left behind. So I've always been interested in those dualities, those multi, uh, you know, the multi-layered aspects of existence, of identity, and how geography appears um, in our everyday lives on a human level. So it's less about locations and specifics and here and there and more about the people occupying those spaces and how they take those places with them um, or not. Um, even how they then occupy places that they've not yet been and those places you know, um, own a part of their imagination in a way that almost interferes with their daily life as well. Well, let me ask you about that in particular because I, I think you're essentially describing Miami and how Miami operates in a lot of these stories right because I think 
especially vivid in your work, but any of us who live here and have friends and family elsewhere know that for a lot of people in the world, this is sort of a city that's almost a metaphor or a place to imagine and dream about or just think of another life that could be or could have been. But I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how Miami fits into your work in particular. Yeah, I moved to Miami almost 20 years ago. Uh, I did not have the good fortune of growing up here like a lot of you did. So I've always had that um, outsider's sense of wonder about the place, which maybe you have too because yeah. you're also a new arrival. You, you, it never gets old looking at the ocean, right? Or appreciating a night like this in the middle of winter when people in New York are you know, at 18 degrees. And we still have that sense of gratitude and appreciation. And I think that's something that never goes away when you're not from here. Um, so I think I carry that, that sense of enchantment a little bit in my work. At the same time, I've been here so long that I have learned a thing or two about, about the communities here or specific communities or pockets of this, this um, great and vibrant city um, that I've tried to explore in the work. And simply because it, it's I'm curious and it excites me and I just, it's not like I feel like I'm an authority in any way on anything having to do with this region, but every story is an exploration and an effort to understand in a more intimate way. Uh, I was wondering maybe if you could read a little bit from the book and maybe we could read from one of the Miami stories. Yeah, here let's do it. I'm going to read something I haven't read so far um, on this uh, book tour. And it's a, it's a very Miami story. It's the second one in the collection. It's called Fausto. And if I recall, you and I met when I, I read this in New York. Yep. It had just been published by a public space. Yep, I was, so. I was working there. Yes. Yeah. That's right. I hadn't thought about that until yeah. just now. But that of was 10 years ago or so. So this is a story I wrote quite a, quite a while ago, right? So Fausto and I were together seven years by then. The neighborhood people still called us Los Niños, even though we were 25, not kids at all. We were at Virginia Key, the segregated beach in the not-so-old days, and maybe it still is in some way because you only see inland Colombians there now. It was August. We were fresh out of hurricane number three. Our homes lost power, and because of where we lived, we knew it would be a few days before we got it back. The hurricane pulled the seaweed out to the bay, turning the water as Caribbean turquoise as Miami gets. Fausto and I splashed around and made plans like we always did for when we got married, our honeymoon in Cartagena or San Andres. Fausto wouldn't propose without a ring though, and that ring was taking a while because Fausto wasn't exactly making millions as a security guard. I was wearing the string bikini he bought for me at some junk shop on Collins Avenue, and when we were up to our chest in water, I pressed my body against his. I don't need a ring, Faustito. No woman in my family ever got a ring. Let's not break the tradition. <laughs> the sand was a brilliant white, but you can't stop sludge around here. I'd see guys on the side of the road selling piles of local cats shouting fresh fish, fresh fish, and tell Fausto they were poisoning the community with those grease-bellied pescados. Fausto would say I was a pessimist and a paranoiac, but I didn't care. I always carried alcohol pads to wipe our feet so we wouldn't have to bring the ocean's caca home with us. 
I was wiping tar off my heel when Fausto started waving to this gringo in a suit like he was his long-lost papi and left me standing flamingo-ish on the hot sand. I knew everybody Fausto knew, even the people I didn't know, like the ones from his job at the Diamond, a cylindrical, brickle condo that looks like a giant condom, because Fausto told me everything. He'd come home late, and I always saved him a plate from the restaurant, listened to his stories about Los Ricos, their hot cars and hot women, and how security guards are the eyes and ears of an apartment complex, know which residents are cheats, drunks, who gets visits, visits from putas or cops. The gringo in the suit that day didn't look like anyone I'd heard of. Next to the suit guy's fatness, Fausto was slim and brown, as if he'd been carved out of a coconut shell, swim trunks sticking to his thighs like cellophane. I was rubbing tar off my foot when Fausto returned. Who was that guy? He lives in the diamond. What did he want? Just saying hi, what, I'm supposed to ignore the guy when he's waving to me? What's he doing out here in a suit? Oye, Paz, you asked so many questions. Maybe he was checking the tide. How should I know? Fausto was one step from declaring me a pain in the ass. So I shut up. He did that a lot, an old trick that boys pull on their novias, calling them nagginags to blame them for their scamming. Not that Fausto was on the cheater's track, no way. He relied on me too much for his babying. He came up close to me. Did I tell you I'm up for a promotion? Maybe this guy will put in a good word. He's on the board. They stick together, esa gente. And you know what that means. What? More money, honey. He lifted me into the air by the force of his palms under my butt and spun me around like I was a little girl, even though Fausto and I were the same height, lanky, forever tan like chorizos. Same shoulder-length black waves that had everyone thinking we were twins until they caught us in a makeout. And the funny thing is, we could have been related. Our parents came from the same hungry pueblo folded into the northern hills of Medellin. Maybe our abuelita shared a lover. How else to explain that a continent and a few decades later, we found ourselves looking into a mirror of indigenous eyes, fat lips, touching each other's cheeks with identical square fingertips that the 27th Avenue bus stop bruja told us were rare blessings, meant for counting money. Fausto and I always knew we were made for each other. Nothing could get in the way of us, not even my papi or his. So I didn't think much about the suit guy at the beach that day, only about Fausto, Fausto maybe getting promoted, getting that bigger paycheck, and finally buying a ring to mark his girl so the neighborhood would stop groaning that he was a loser. Fausto used to say that all this, the hurricanes, the beach, the boring jobs, wasn't real life. We were still in the womb, and we'd really be born once we made some money. The kind of money where you don't have to worry about your car dying on the road. You can change bags and charge bags and bags of groceries. Where you can pay all your bills, and you don't have to buy crap at the flea market instead of a real store. My father thinks people with natural born money are evil. But that's because Papi got his start as a dishwasher, worked his way up, and now has his own cafeteria colombiana. So he's no longer broke, but he still talks like he is, even though he just bought a brand new Buick. And his restaurant doesn't have some super cute name like every other Colombian joint in town. Mi Colombia querida, mi sueño colombiano, rinconcito paisa, casita Antioquia. <laughs> no. His place is named after him, el patron, Silvio's, the vain man that he is. 
I'm kidding. I just get on Papi's case because he was always on mine about Fausto. But really, my father is a fine man and I love him. And anyone in our neighborhood will tell you that I am the best daughter on this side of the Caribbean. For example, I go to church with Papi not only on Sundays, but also on First Fridays, some Wednesdays and Thursdays, and every Saturday is too. Because Saturday is the day of the Virgin, and if you go often enough, you might get lucky and die on a Saturday. And La Virgen will take you straight to heaven like a VIP. <laughs> My mother died of an embolism when I was a baby, on a Saturday. Papi says she went to Jesus direct, and he's repaying the favor by bringing La Virgen flowers every week. That's my father, Mr. Gratitude. The church brought me Fausto, so I really can't complain. I was in my senior year at Our Lady of Mercy. Papi and I went to the Friday Sunrise Mass. I don't know if they have those in other places, but San Lorenzo's parish is, parish is full of fanatics, so they make it extra for them. I received communion and prayed for a boyfriend, like usual. When we were headed home after the service, this off-duty priest, Padre Miguel Angel, who was only a few years older than me, older than I am now, and if he weren't a priest, Papi would probably beg me to marry him, approached us and said, Don Silvio, I have a favor to ask you. Papi loves when priests ask him favors. Of course, anything, Padre. It's kind of funny when you see an old guy like my dad calling a newly minted priest Padre. I personally had never called him anything but Miguel Angel, even when he caught me crying in the back of the chapel after Saturno, the birth control broker who supplied me and Fausto so Papi wouldn't find out, got busted for selling Mexican duds. <laughs> the Padre held my hand and prayed four straight rosaries so I wouldn't be premaritally pregnant, which we both knew would kill my father. I never told Fausto. He's always saying San Lorenzo's is one big pickup spot. I'm going to send a young man your way, Miguel Angel told Papi. He needs a job. His mother's worried about him. His father died recently. Maybe you can give him something to do at the restaurant. Of course, Padre. Consider it done. His name is Fausto. Fausto Guerra. Papi chuckled. With a name like that. Miguel Angel smiled but caught himself and touched Papi's arm. Just see what you can do for him, he said, then headed off to the rectory. I was at school when Fausto made his first appearance at Silvio's. But when he showed up to start work the next morning, a Saturday, Fausto parked his body in front of my concession stand of Bayanato and Cumbia CDs, mochilas and bumper stickers, coffee, Colombian newspapers and magazines and folkloric knickknacks. He leaned onto the glass case. Who were you, belleza? Paz, Silvio's daughter. And I'm Silvio, in case you forgot. I didn't realize Papi had come up behind me. Get to work, muchacho, you're an hour late. Sometimes love hits you like a drunk driver on Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> a tragedy, really, but you don't care, because you're the victim, and beyond hope anyway. I was lost on Fausto by the time he tied his kitchen apron and got to work washing dishes because Papi thinks cleaning is a purification of the spirit, and he would test Fausto's humility before putting his pretty face to use as a waiter. I knew that was Papi's intention, but Fausto didn't last. It was only one week and six broken dishes until he quit. <laughs> so I'll stop there. <laughs> uh, so I have a lot of questions out of that story in particular. <laughs> uh, first and probably most difficult is if you can explain it, and I know that you wrote this a while ago, so feel free to speak in generalities, but how does the voice for 
a story develop and how does that I guess feel different than when it's developing for a novel because in this collection I think like the variety of registers that you're working in is just really impressive and incredibly uh, feel every voice feels lived in but I'm curious how that process works for you with the stories yeah it's hard to say um, what comes first like the voice or you know the character's interiority and um, maybe they both come from different directions close to the same time um, in the case of the story, which has a very specific voice, right? right? Um, I was really thinking about the character and her life, and her life is very much a product of her relationships, the close proximity to her father, this boyfriend who's the center of her universe. And, um, and the voice really started coming from there. You know, um, it's really, you know, a, a female experience, but in relation to men a lot of the time. Um, and the voice is something that you play with. You play with continuously, um, and thinking about well, what are the what are the metaphors somebody like her would reach for? There wouldn't be the ones maybe you or I would reach for, right? To describe something like falling in love, and and that's where the fun of writing of writing fiction is because you get to inhabit other lives, other other identities, and and just play. And a lot of voice really is just that. It's just coming down to you know. Um, just make believe and, and playing on the page. Does it feel different than when you are committing to a voice for a novel? Because when it's a novel, that voice has to do a lot. You know, it's, it needs to be capable of so much. And with a story, maybe there's you can preserve a little bit more of that sense of play. Yeah, I think ideally you put the same burdens on both, right? Mm -hmm. um, I love to read and I try to write stories that feel like teeny novels or you know that that almost the weight of a, a of a novel in miniature um but i think i think we place the same um responsibilities on voice whether it's a short or long form certainly when you're writing long form as you know this is hard to sustain you know it's a different process it's a different architecture that you're working with um but i think that um you know it it needs to carry the same weight and even be distributed uh, similarly as a, sh as a short story Okay, so with this story in particular, Fausta, I'm going to now just throw a theory or label on you that you probably want nothing to do with. Uh, Fausto feels to me like the most crime-ish story in this collection. I write and love crime fiction, so I think... It, and it, I, it's a little crime-ish. <laughs> it has a sense of uh, overwhelming fate that leads towards a crime. And I once, I know that I described, and you'll want no part of this, but I told somebody once that your novel, Veins of the Ocean that the first 120 pages was the best crime novel written in the decade. And I, I meant it. It's like a joke. But I, that, that it, it exists independently as this incredible little sort of crime novel. But I'm curious how you feel like that sort of crime, or let's call it fate, factors into these stories because it's, it's present in so many of them in one way or another. You know, now that you mention it, Dwyer, there is a lot of crime in this book. There is. Um, now that I think about it, the opening story is about a, a kidnapping. Yeah. There's a kidnapping in the last story, too. Yeah. Now that you bring it to my attention, there's I realize there's, 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 Honestly, a there's a lot of your books. There's a lot of criminal activity here. Um, but I didn't think about it that way. And I think, how can I say this without sounding a little nuts? I don't want to say that I'm enchanted by crime. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, the literary value of crime and 
um, is because, wow, how else do you really get to examine human motivation, intent, desire, risk, mm -hmm. plot? You know, it's all outlines in crimes, you know, and as writers, we have a lot to learn from criminals, <laughs> right? In terms of uh, uh, creating character and the world behind, you know, uh, motivation, right? right? And stakes and, and things like that. Um, I, I, that just sounds crazy, what I just said. Well, no, another, another thing I think that all of these, basically all of these stories and just about everything you've written probably has is this central preoccupation that also elevates the stakes incredibly is emigration, like the sheer act of emigration, whether it's on the horizon or 30 years ago, or it's we're actually following a character who is crossing a border that seems to be sort of at the center of your imagination. And I'm wondering kind of how you think of that, uh, that idea, how it factors into your fiction in your life. Yeah, certainly I, I'm the, the product of immigration in my, my family, my loved ones, my dearest ones, my dearest friends, and my dearest communities all um, are living with that condition of, uh, you know, they're um, coming from elsewhere in one way or another. Um, and that's an ongoing process, and, and there's something beautiful about that because it's not defined. And in almost in um, breaking borders by, you know, crossing geographies and landscapes, you become borderless in a way. And that's something that has always intrigued me. I think um, we have had different language to describe such a, an experience over my lifetime. You know, we've gone from thinking of ourselves as hyphenated peoples, right? Um, or um, or, or feeling um, you have to choose one country over another. And once you re reject that, it's really liberating because you don't have to do that at all, right? Um, we're constantly um, articulating our existence the, by the way we live our lives, and there's a way to inhabit multiple identities because the world, even though there's so much importance given to borders, the world really is borderless because of technology and because of our ability to travel and because of uh, what money facilitates and, and all these things. So I think once we can tr you know, transcend that in our thinking, it's really quite liberating um, and powerful and th there's a freedom in that. And there's a freedom in that that I have found as a writer, which is that um, you get to live without loyalties, which means that you can write things. Um, any way you want. What about linguistically? Do you, uh, are you ever thinking, writing, moving between Spanish and English? Yeah, the language of my upbringing and of my home is Spanish, but the language of my education is English, right? So I'm obviously more dominant in English. But, um, I mean, as, as you all know, there are certain things that simply don't translate. Um, and there are things that, as a human, one feels and one experiences for which there are no words in one language, but there might be in another, right? So it's almost like when, when you don't have access to other languages and you're feeling things and you don't really know what they are, it's because almost like you don't have the language for it. So even though I'm writing in English, there are certain things that I simply cannot 
describe without reaching for Spanish at times. And also, I, my, my duty is always to the authenticity of my characters and to their voice and how they would speak and how they would express themselves, how their life philosophies and psychologies, their personal histories, all come out in every word that they say, as it does for all of us, right? We reveal ourselves by the manner in which we speak and express ourselves. It's the same with characters. Uh, I'd like to also open this up to the crowd here. We have a nice uh, home crowd, as we said before. So if there are some questions that people would like to ask, we could, uh, you know, I'm not sure the best process to do this by, but we could do hands or something. And if anybody would like to, to ask something, please, you know, jump up and we can we can begin that anytime how many books have you published Patricia? <laughs> this is my fifth book the faraway world is my fifth book yeah it's my fifth yeah <laughs> what are they, please? uh vita it's not love it's just paris the veins of the ocean infinite country and now the faraway worlds congratulations thank you so the question is uh about as you're writing, do you think about previous generations and eras of immigration in the u.s uh, and how does that affect you yeah, um, you know, I, I don't try to come to fiction writing with a sense of like making it a history lesson, but because I uh, of how I uh, live in this world, I'm the same person. I only have one brain, two eyes, one heart, you know, and I'm in this body. There's a certain way that I experience the world, or the world experiences me. Um, there really is no day that I don't go by without thinking about all the people who came before me and my family, and certainly my family's own uh, immigration story and all the challenges and sacrifices and, and beautiful things that, that came as a result of it. So that's just something that I've internalized really profoundly. Um, and my, my writing is, is um, a, an ongoing exploration of experiences on that spectrum, not to say they're mine, I, I write fiction, I don't write autobiography, but because coming up as a young, enthusiastic uh, reader, I did not see the communities that I knew so well reflected in contemporary literature, and, and that's that's what I, I tried to build towards. Um, but uh, but as I said, it's, it's a constant process of discovery, but because of who I am and, and how I've lived my life, these are all things that I carry with me all the time. I saw Andrew had a question. The question is, uh, some of the stories are even you know, years old and what the process was like coming back to those stories and what it made you think about and how you may have changed in the meantime. Let me just say this question is from a former student of mine, <laughs> Andrew, who has a book coming out this year, Andrew. It's called Villain, it's coming, uh, Victim, it's coming out from Doubleday. And Andrew, we've talked about revision a lot. <laughs> I knew, I know, I know. He's like, oh, am I ever going to not have to revise? No, Andrew, you'll never not have to revise. So, uh, um, so uh, yeah, these stories were written over, over tw 10 or 12 years, and um, there, a lot of them were published, you know, as they came along. Um, so they went through a lot of rigorous work individually. Um, and then when I put them together as a collection, they're really, because of that, because they had all been through the ringer, you know, along the way, um, there was really um, very little work to do um, in that sense, thankfully. But it's not because I avoid revision, Andrew. You know that. <laughs> it's because I go, 
hard into revision so that later on I don't have to try to you know go back to it but y you asked me if there were things that um, I saw changed and the first story in this written out of these 10 is the one that I just read from that's the oldest one which I think I, I wrote it in 2009 or so um, and that's a story that I had a lot of fun writing and I think I wrote that story before my first book, Vida, came out. So I was still writing with this sense of not having been read by anybody. And that's certainly something that I try to always come back to with everything that I write is just that, that fun that you have when you're writing just for yourself and you don't know if it's going to be a dud or if it's going to you know, ever go anywhere. Um, the last story that I wrote... Um, is a story that was just published recently in Oprah Daily, it's called Libelula. Um, and that story, you know, I, I make it sound like I just wrote it. I wrote it three years ago and I worked on it for three years. Um, so that was three years of laboring over that story even though it was the last one um, in this book. The question is, what are your recurring obsessions? <laughs> you know, th that's the, the great thing about writing is I can just be totally in denial of what my obsessions are until somebody tells you, right? <laughs> Uh, and some, or you know, a, a literature student will you know do do an analysis, and I'm like, oh yeah, geez, I guess I got to work on that or something. Um, so, but there are certainly echoes throughout these stories in ways that they you know are in conversation with one another. Um, a lot of those echoes um, have to do with with desire, with risk, with. Um, with um, taking big leaps in life, whether it be geographically or in a relationship or pursuing a dream of some kind or not, right? Um, that's a risk too. It's a risk to turn away from your dreams, right? Um, so I, I'm always interested in, in those lines that people come across in their life where they can go one way or another, right? And they make those choices that really sometimes you think, oh, this is not a big choice and it ends up taking your life on a very different course. Um, so I think that's something that that uh, that comes up a lot in my work, um, and also um, a lot of the stories center the experiences of women, and I've always been interested in how women define themselves given the roles that are available to them in their lives. So you see in these stories, um, women, um, and they're. The not all the narrators are women, but there are, are women present throughout, and you see how different women navigate the options available to them and that that's something that um that always interests me a craft question how do you handle momentum and pacing within a story short or long yeah that's a good question i love craft questions right um and it, a lot of it just comes from my taste as a reader as a reader i love stories that get right into it and i love short stories that read very intensely where you feel like wow i just read something and you know you come out a bit affected or changed or moved ultimately that's what everyone goes for is just that's why we go to art why we go to books why we go to films and music we, we want to feel something right so that's always what i'm going for um i like to just get right into it from the opening of a story but i do approach short stories and novels in the same in that way and i'll give you an example do i brought up the veins of the ocean before right the veins the first chapter in the veins of the ocean was a short story i wrote it as a short story it's, it was published um, by the atlantic it was called the bridge um I wrote it as a short story. I thought it was going to be a short story, and that was it. That was the end of it. It kind of um, was an anomaly in that it, it haunted me for a couple of years, and I thought I, I should return to it. Uh, and so I did, and it became a novel. It was the first chapter in that novel. But 
Um, so I do try to even approach chapters and novels like stories like standalone pieces that have arcs where you begin somewhere and you arrive somewhere else. So in that way, I think short story writing ha has a lot to teach us about writing novels. This is the great Carlos Frias over there. That's uh, insane. I, Wait, do you... <laughs> you th we've just learned that maybe Patricia throws away first drafts, just crumples them up and tosses them in the garbage like a lunatic. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Dwyer. This is crazy. Ask a couple of my students here. Do I do that? Yeah. I, don't, I, wouldn't, I don't crumple it. Um, you delete it? Like, is it typed and then you delete it? I just put it in the land of files that I never look at okay. again. You know, um, little, but yes, I do. I, it is true. It is true that um, I'll write a whole draft and then I'm like, this sucks. And, and, I, and I don't go back. Um, I start over. I start over every time. Let's say I have a draft that doesn't suck, right? Then I'll, I'll print it out and I'll look at it, but I will still start from scratch on the document. I always begin again. And there's a reason. It's not, it's not just chaos, right? It, there's a, the reason is... For me, what keeps me writing is that energy and connection that I feel to the work. And I always feel when I'm just like tinkering on the page with the text that's already written, I already feel a removal from it. So the way that I stay engaged in stories is by feeling like I'm writing it for the first time, even though I'm not obviously, I'm just drafting and drafting and drafting. But that's how you know, my, I signal to my body somehow that it's new. So, and I've internalized the story enough where it's here, it's in my head, um, and so it just comes out in a much stronger way. But I also like the idea of not being controlled by my drafts. Um, and that, that's something, you know, I think um, that can, can be um, an obstacle for some writers. You feel like, oh, I already wrote so many pages, I gotta work with what I've got. And, and sometimes when I, I can have hundreds of pages and I'm like, it's not working, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll never look at it again. Great question. Are you working on something new right now? Yeah, I'm in the the very, very early stages of a, of a novel. How superstitious are you about this fact? It's it's uh it's not superstition that keeps me from talking about it. It's a little bit of like um, you know, I'm still trying to wrangle it for myself creatively and in my brain. So once I start talking about it it's just it becomes very slippery and it's hard for me do you have that experience do yeah you talk it about it loses something when you talk about it i i, I would keep yeah. it in my pocket for yeah. as long as possible if i were you but still a yeah. good question yeah what's your process with research oh i research a ton and i even research things that i already know because um i don't know if it's a, a bit of imposter syndrome or something but i i, I would never I don't even think I'm an authority on my own life, you know. Uh, even things about myself I want to research down to my hometown or the, you know, the things that I know intimately, I would still research because I'm not writing about myself, I'm writing about other people, right? And of course, I'll give you an example, and this is an example I share with my students, so you guys already know this. Uh, when we talk about a place like Miami, we're all gathered here in the same bookstore, in the same space, on the same night, having a shared experience, and yet we're all experiencing it totally differently. We're all experiencing the city. We go home and we have very different notions of what this place Coral Gables or Miami, whatever it is. So everything is experienced and described through the eye of the beholder, or the heart of the feeler, you know, all these things. And 
And so I almost have to deauthorize myself as a writer in telling the stories um, and not depend on my own firsthand knowledge, but really try to access things almost from a stranger's perspective in order to write them about them in, in a new way. One, things I, one thing I sort of observed about these stories is that I think you have a really beautiful sense of time about how to end a story. And so I'm just thinking that this is an appropriate place for us to end our evening. Uh, and I would like to thank everybody here from Books and Books. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Dwyer.